Well, welcome to The Way Home Podcast, a conversation about church, community, and culture. I'm your host, Dan Darling, here in Nashville, Tennessee. Today, I'm joined by New York Times bestselling author and popular spoken word artist, Jefferson Vetke. He became well-known. You probably know him from his video, uh, Jesus is Better Than Religion, which really kind of blew up on YouTube. He has a huge audience on YouTube and has a really great ministry reaching young people with the gospel. Well, he's out with a new book called It's Not What You Think, which is a very interesting book. He goes through several sort of uh, aspects of Christianity and life uh, and kind of really turns it on his head and says, this is what people think about this, but this is really what reality is uh, in light of scripture and what we know. And so this will be a great conversation about... um, about his book, about YouTube, about sort of reaching this generation uh, of millennials. So I, I encourage you to continue to listen to this. Before we get to our conversation with Jefferson, however, I do want to let you know about ways that you can listen to the Way Home podcast. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, TuneIn, and a new technology called Signal. We'd love to hear your feedback. You could send us an email, wayhome at erlc.com, or else you can connect with me on Twitter, at Dan Darling or you can write a review on one of those places. We would love to see some reviews on iTunes that help spread the word and let people know about the podcast. We'd also like to invite you uh, to this really great event we're hosting with Focus on the Family in January in Washington, D.C., uh, January 21st and 22nd. It's called Evangelicals for Life. And one of the things we wanted to do was really rally young evangelicals to Washington, D.C. to be not only be part of the March for Life and make a statement in Washington, D.C. about the way we feel about the sanctity of human life, but also have a conference to help equip uh, us to be champions for life in our communities on a wide range of issues, not just abortion, but on end-of-life issues and just seeing the image of God in in every person. And so we encourage you to come. I have a special discount coupon code that I will give you at the end of the broadcast that you can get 20% off registration, but you'll want to act quickly because I know the registration window is closing. And so please uh, join us. We'd love to see you in Washington, D.C. But for now, let's join our conversation with Jefferson Betke. Jefferson Betke, thanks for joining us today on the Way Home Podcast. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. So before we talk about your new book, It's Not What You Think, which I think is a fascinating book, I want to, for maybe people who haven't heard of you, which I can't imagine there are people that haven't heard of you, but let's say they haven't, just a little bit about your your story and your journey. Probably people first got to know you because of your YouTube video that went viral, right? Jesus is better than religion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's it's funny that you even mentioned that, how, you know, there's a there's a ton of people that haven't heard of me, but it's really funny, uh, you know, when I just when they'll be like, "Oh, you're the that guy that made yeah. that video on YouTube." So there's no name recognition or anything. I'm yeah. just that guy that had a four minute video on YouTube, which is a weird place to be in, you know. Yeah. But um, yeah. So this is kind of where where how I got to where I am today. Um, it, it all kind of started in college. I I didn't really start following Jesus seriously until college. Mm-hmm. Really felt like I finally understood grace. Finally felt like my heart was transformed and really understood that it was you know, really about intimacy with the Lord. And so that started happening freshman, sophomore year of college, kind of put me on the trajectory of having a big heart for my college campus. Um, I went to a non-Christian college. After freshman year, I went to a Christian college, but after that, I went to a non-Christian college. Um, and so I was just trying to reach them. And then mm-hmm. what happened is I actually, I, I, I saw that there was an open mic on campus, and I was like, well, I've never really done anything. I don't sing, I don't dance, I don't play an instrument. 
But, you know, I kind of grew up in an urban context, hip-hop culture, and so spoken word was something I always liked and gravitated towards, so I was mm-hmm. like, man, maybe I'll try it. So I just literally wrote a poem, um, and I thought it was going to be my first and my last poem, Never Do One Again. I thought it was just kind of for a time and a place to kind of reach those students, because it was like a 1,500-person school, but there was like 400 students at the open mic, so proportionally it was a, you know, big outreach, per se, opportunity. And um, and it went really well. I thought I was going to get booed or, you know, really liberal, progressive school, and so it went really well, and I think it just showed me that, man, my generation's really hungry for truth. And actually, if you really just kind of come out and say it, they kind of really respect that. So, you know, obviously still win some way, but that's how it happened. So then I was like, oh, well, maybe I should write another one. This is, this is, this works, you know? And that's where the YHA Religion poem came from. Mm-hmm. And um, it was just sitting in my notebook. I graduated. It never did anything with it. And then one weekend, my buddy, who's a videographer, was like, you know, we, I guess we just do what millennials do, right? He was like, I'm bored. Let's make a video. So... <laughs> You know, I'm like, I'm bored too. Let's make a video. So that was just what I had. I already had, we were like, well, it makes it easier because I already have content. Mm. That's how it happened. And then it just went viral the next day after we put it up online, but, you know, kind of crazy. And so since then, I really tried to steward it. And I don't really see spoken word as kind of my vision or theme of what I want to do, but I tried to leverage it and steward it to really put me more in the perspective of I really, really love studying and the scriptures and I'm in seminary right now. And so I really love writing. I really like kind of teaching and more like insights into the scripture and kind of bringing biblical literacy to my generation. And so that's more what I tried to turn it towards, and I guess I've been doing that for a couple of years, or at least attempting, and mm-hmm. um, it's been really fun. Do you, did you have any idea that it would go viral like that? I mean, did you have any clue that this thing would blow up? No, no, yeah, not at all. It was like I thought it would, you know, maybe get... I had one video on YouTube before that, so it gave me a little context. Uh-huh. And so because of that video, I thought maybe this video would get a couple thousand views. Mm. And so, you know, and that, that was like, you know, the first 10 minutes, I guess. I don't know. Because like the first day, it was like a million and a half or whatever. So, it, yeah, it kind of really blew my mind and was kind of crazy. It's interesting to me that there's a whole kind of YouTube, uh, I would say, culture, an audience, right? That it might even be way vastly bigger than any other medium. Oh, totally. And that's actually like my biggest kind of heartbeat and sometimes even wrestle with sometimes um, the church that's not stepping into that space. It's such a, it's it's where things are happening. It's the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Twitter and Facebook and Instagram are good, <clears throat> but at the end of the day, they don't really create a strong community. They're more following. They're more mm-hmm. social media following. YouTube's unique because it really creates strong communities. Mm-hmm. The people, you know, from screen to audience, really enjoy each other, they communicate, and they kind of have a lot of kind of online power because they are this really strong community talking directly to the audience. And I wish more churches kind of put their ring in that, in that or their hat in that ring, per se, of just really jumping into that and really um, creating and leveraging that community. Because, yeah, I mean, the stats are insane. You know, like 4 billion, I think it was last year, it was like 4 billion, you know, views on mm. YouTube. and That's amazing. Uh, you know, yeah, and it's like, you know, Every couple minutes, it's like, you know, five days worth of footage is uploaded. There's crazy stats. So that's where I think the marketplace is right now, and I think we should jump more into it. You know, I don't think people think of YouTube as a community. I think people think of it as this is a place where you store videos and you can embed them in your blogs and you can share them. I don't think people think of YouTube, at least people who are not invested in doing ministry and kind of in the community, as I think they just think of you know, Facebook is kind of a community maybe or Twitter or like yeah. other social Snapchat, but like they don't understand that. Like yeah. explain how it, it, you know, the community aspect of it. I mean, that's yeah, so amazing it, to me. It's just so much more, I, it, it just was, it really, I guess, came down to the brand, right? Any, mm. Anytime a social media gets launched, the brand is what, from the beginning, is kind of what it usually gets branded as. Mm. And YouTube from the beginning became this place 
where there's still content creators on YouTube that were around in 2006 and 2007. They were posting videos, and then what it is, is it becomes a very much a like-minded place, which Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, I believe, don't really have this, meaning it's kind of like putting yourself out there and how you feel and how you think and your thoughts and opinions, and you know maybe it's comedy, maybe it's serious. And then with YouTube, what happens is you start to get kind of subscribers of people say, oh, yeah, that's me. Oh, yeah, that's me. Oh, yeah, I believe that, too. Or, oh, yeah, I think that way, too. And that kind of happens on the other social medias, but I don't think nearly as strong because it's video-based. And so the, the medium is you're talking directly to the audience. You can actually engage them and, you know, say, hey, I'll touch out with you down in the comment section. And there's crazy stats of, like, um, Felix, who his name his YouTube name is PewDiePie, which most people might not hear heard of him, but he's the biggest YouTuber in the world has like 8 billion views and 40 million subscribers, you know, like he did like a charity water thing with his community and it, you know, raised like, I don't know, fifty, a hundred thousand dollars which, you know, it's like when a Hollywood celebrity does it, it like doesn't raise nearly as much as mm-hmm. that. So it shows you just the power of the medium. And I think, um, yeah, all you have to do is spend an hour trying to search more people who actually do YouTube as a full-time job. And you'll see that the reason they're successful is because they've created almost like this family on the channel. Yeah, I, I just read an article in Fortune magazine about these major YouTube stars. I mean, these people are making a killing on YouTube, but it, what was fascinating to me more is just the huge audience that they have that a lot of people don't even know about. It, it's very interesting just how that can be leveraged, and I think more than anybody, yeah. you've really done well speaking into that audience. And uh, well, I want to, yeah, I mean, it's more, yeah. I really appreciate it. It's fun. Yeah, well, I want to talk some about about this book you have. It's called "It's Not What You Think." I, I really love the 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 title. And why Christianity is about so much more than going to heaven when you it die. It took us like four months. So. <laughs> no, it didn't. And so you kind of go through several different sort of um, topics and say, this is not what you think. So like your, your story's not what you think, the temple's not what you think, people are not what you think, so on and so forth. And so I just want to ask you, what prompted you to write this book? What what was it that first launched in your mind that said, you know, this might be something I need to I need to write about? Totally. Um, this book, actually, just like the last one, both were kind of out of like an overflow, just my personal walk and journey mm-hmm. with the Lord. And it's funny to see that the book before me, you know, is only two years old, Jesus Christ and Religion, or I mean, before this one, is only two years old. But when I turned it in, you know, I wasn't married, didn't have a kid, we didn't live where we live. So a lot of things have changed in simply these two books, just in my own journey of of how to create a family, how to, you know, uh, love, you know, my wife Alyssa well, and just asking different questions because of that. And so really in my own personal walk and journey and study, I was just trying to kind of go deeper and, and really picking up books by people like Walter Brueggemann and Richard Hayes, N.T. Wright, Kenneth mm-hmm. Bailey, people that really, um, even though some people might disagree with some of the streams that those guys are in, what they're all first rate at is the world of the scriptures. They're all really first rate at what is the, what is the context of the scriptures? What did that world look like, and how did that inform what we're reading that's in front of us? And so for me, I've never really you know, read stuff like that, and so coming across some of these texts and insights, and then going back to the Bible, I just feel like it. I use the, mm. you know, the example in the intro of The Giver, where um, the famous book and movie where you know, everything's black and white, but then one guy starts to see in color. Um, but what's crazy about that movie is everything's color all the time, right? It's just that no one could see it, right? So it's not like the color all of a sudden happened. It's that they were kind of blinded by the color. So I use that as an example to say that I feel like I've kind of, we've kind of muted the scriptures because we don't understand the world that Jesus lived in. We've kind of um, turned them black and white. But if we really enter into the world of Jesus and what it meant to be a first century Jew under Roman rule or to be an Israel coming out of Exodus, you know, then the scriptures, I think, really become actually more pertinent for our lives. And so that's really the basic overview. And then each chapter, like you said, is a different subject of one kind of huge theme, I think, that we've kind of let fall off the map. 
that really was very pivotal to Jesus, his worldview, to the Jewish worldview, um, and the early church's worldview. And so, like, Sabbath and kingdom and temple, mm-hmm. things that were very charged and big in their world. So, yeah, that's like the, the kind of the elevator pitch in the sense of where I came from, why I was excited about it, and uh, and kind of where 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 it's going. So I want to I want to go through a couple of these if if you don't mind. The the first one I think is very you know I, I'm glad you started here. Your story is not what you think. Love defined you before anyone else did. Maybe discuss that a, a bit. Yeah. So that one. I mean, I grew up in the evangelical subculture of you know believe these three facts, say this, and then do this, and then you're saved. Right. Um, when I was never really, I personally think that the thing that really makes, I think that's a huge reason actually why I think a lot of the youth are leaving um, by the time they get 18 or 19, because that doesn't have uh, any fiber to it per mm-hmm. se. It doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't give you a spine in the sense of what really keeps you is when you're called to a bigger and a deeper story, because then you feel like you can't go anywhere because you know this is like the world you're living in, if that makes sense. And not in the sense of like a prison, I'm just saying like anyone, right? Any, anyone who's living in a story it's more compelling. Um, it's more uh, dramatic in, in a good way. And that's what I talk about is, man, we, we really need to take Christianity. We don't realize that, you know, the post-modernist, post-modernist movement, um, the Industrial Revolution, and how we do education, those three things have really infected the Christian culture. You know, like we, our Christianity, American Christianity, is basically an industrial revolutionized version, right, where put them in the assembly line, all give them the exact same thing, stamp them down the line so it's what most efficient. Um, and I just kind of can see this factory-like Christianity. And I just think, you know, I think we really need to go back to, again, the scriptures were very story-oriented. They told stories, they knew stories, that's what they lived in, that was kind of their currency. That's how they knew truth and communicated truth was via story. And so I just say we really need to tell that. We have a huge story, but I think we've made it really flimsy and small and tiny we need to get back to telling the grand narrative. And then I even talk about some interesting stuff with science on how, like, actually our brain remembers stuff better when it's a story. Um, you know, we're actually meant to engage via story and then truths come after. There's a bunch of other stuff in that chapter. But that's kind of what, what I, why I wanted to start there. I feel like that was the foundation for the book almost. I'm really glad you did that. One of the things I wrote about in my book, The Original Jesus, was I think the modern evangelical church, much, much good, but really emphasizing this sort of personal relationship with, with Christ, which which is what Christianity is, but really has lost a sense of like the weight of church history and you totally. know, how we got here and being part of, as you said, a bigger story that we're part of this 2,000 year plus story of what God is doing in the world. You know, like you might go into the typical evangelical church and not have any sense of church history. You, you know, it's like we, we invented Jesus last week or something. And like, uh, yeah. I, I love that. And I think we, I love we try that to do that because we feel like, but we don't realize how much we're standing on the shoulders of all mm-hmm. those people and that we don't need to hide them, but actually celebrate that. Yeah, that's great. I like how you talk about people are not who you think. They're neighbors to love, not commodities to use. Man, that's a, that's a great message for today. Yeah, that was a, that book actually, I mean, that, that chapter really came out of uh, me reading a book called Sabbath as Resistance by Walter Brueggemann, and even mm-hmm. though it's on Sabbath per se, there's like half the book is really on commodification of people, and he really does a juxtaposition of Yahweh versus Pharaoh in, in the book of Exodus. Mm-hmm. Fascinating book, fascinating insight on just, yeah, when you look at Pharaoh, Pharaoh is all about getting more work, more bricks, you know, using people who cared if they died, I just mm-hmm. want bricks, you know, so it's it's not about the people, it's about what they make for me, when everything that Yahweh said immediately after pulling them out of, you know, slavery was almost very antithetical to that, and all about, you know, 
you need to take a day of rest because you are all equal and you're people and you're image bearers and, you know, you need to love your neighbor and you need to, and then you put crazy statutes and laws in there of, you know, tithing the crops and stuff for aliens and foreigns and poor people and, so yeah, there's just it's a really interesting juxtaposition when you when you kind of look at it from that way. It really it impacts, I think, Christians too, right? In the way that we think about the world and the issues that we care about. I mean, the Christian story teaches that every person has has dignity, and so if we care about totally. human, human dignity, we will fight against injustice where people are relegated to commodities, right? Exactly, exactly, and that's what I think. We I don't think. Be- because we're not thinking like that, we don't realize how much we actually do it ourselves. Mm. When we start thinking like that, we realize that's actually one of our main kind of bullseyes of what it means to follow Jesus is to really fight for that justice and the sense of dignity and worth of every human. Mm. That's awesome. Here's one I really, I really appreciate. You aren't who you think. You're a person from the future. Can you expand on that? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, what we, we don't realize is that the resurrection was actually pulling the future into the present, right? So every mm-hmm. Jewish person before Jesus, most, all of them believed in the resurrection, obviously, except for, you know, like Sadducees and stuff like that. But for an overall general view, the resurrection was something that they held on to as a vindication that was going to happen at the end of time. Now, Jesus did something crazy because he does in the present for himself, or God does for him in the present for one person, what they expected you know, him to do at the end of time for everyone. And so it's kind of this way of him pulling the future into the present, and he becomes this glorified, resurrected body, which is our hope and which is, is what we're looking for. But there's this call then to kind of go out and act as if it's true, go out and pull that future into the present, take a vision and take a look at what God's good earth is going to be like, um, and then pull that into the present. And I think we have to wrestle with that. We have to ask that. What is, what's it going to look like when God makes heaven and earth one again? And then how do we make that true in our lives right now? And that's really um, what I think it means to be a follower of Jesus. You know, Dr. Moore, who I work for, often says that we're time travelers from the future. And uh, I think that hits upon what you're, what you're talking about. There's two more that I'd like to cover real quick. One that especially resonates with me is the kingdom's not where you think. It's not in the sky. It's here now. This is so important for the way that we view the world, isn't it? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, it really just comes down to a lot of times our story is, you know, God created the world, but we broke it, and now it sucks, and it's going to burn, so we need to leave, right? When really the narrative of scriptures is God created the world, heaven and earth, it's all good. We broke it, and then by an act of crazy grace, he's using the very people that broke it to put it back together. Um, and so if you, if you really study the bookends of scripture, Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation 21, 22, it's really hard to come out of view that says this place does not matter, how I treat the earth, how I, you know, even steward, like, you know, care of animals and how I take care of other people, and just like every aspect of your life actually matters, basically when you understand that, how you take care of your finances, what your marriage looks like, because he's putting it all back together and what you do in this life has ripples and has implications. Um, And so, yeah, the question then becomes, are we our own authority, or are we coming under the authority and the reign and rule of Jesus and kind of living and entering into his kingdom you know, as it comes on earth, as it is in heaven. That framework really affects the way we see the world, too, doesn't it? Yeah, I think that's in the book. I think all of them are vitally important, but I think, yeah, chapter 7, the kingdom chapter, is definitely one where I feel like if you're off on, has the biggest implications, because it really will affect how you live. Yeah. One more. I love the one where you talk about uh, the table. The table's not what you think it is, um, and, and about sacred space and meals. And could, can you uh, share why you included that in the book? Yeah, I mean, again, just studying kind of the Jewish context and Jesus as a rabbi in the first century way of living, 
the table was a, pl- a actual sacred place to them. It was a holy place. Meals were kind of signs of God's provision to us, and kind of a reminder every time you sat at the table that He provides, and that whoever's sitting with you is your family. You know, which is exactly why Jesus got so criticized for eating with certain people, right? Like we, if Jesus came in our culture, that would not make sense, right? We we would never like who cares who he eats with, right? Just because we have such a low view of the table. And I think it's a real beautiful picture to show that, yeah, Jesus is kind of setting this table for us. And table is where you tell stories. It's where you learn about another person. It's where you cry, you laugh. It's where you have this real deep relationship. And I kind of use that imagery of saying that's what following Jesus should be like, not, you know, you in a classroom getting all the facts. And I, I go into a little bit longer story of the road to Emmaus and how I think Jesus shows that. But, um, but yeah, it's really interesting to think about that, man, the table is a place of reconciliation and forgiveness and I know in my own life, you know, it, 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 the actual, you know, having meals as a family um, oh, yeah. and kind of doing, you know, a Sabbath once a week with a special meal, just, you know, all these things. Sometimes they're mundane and, and then they don't feel like there's anything big about them, but it's more about the rhythm uh, creating out throughout your whole life that really creates this place of, you know, the connectedness and that bigger story that we're called to live in. So it's actually a similar kind of cousin chapter to the story chapter, really, which is why I wanted to kind of start and end with that. You know, when I pastored, I would I would say frequently, especially toward the, toward the end of my pastor, when I really started realizing it, uh, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, uh, you know, quite often it's so somber and we're thinking about our sin and about the cross, which we should be doing, and it's a time of confession. But I would tell people it's also a time of just great joy because we're invited once again to, to the Lord's table. We've been reconciled to God and how, totally. you, yeah, you I know, think, sitting around a table... Communion a little too dismal, you know, yeah. and I think, yeah, it's certainly a serious and a weighty thing, and you know, we have to wrestle with our sin in that moment, but, you know, at post-resurrection, the early church called it a love feast. Mm-hmm. You know, historically, that was actually what it was. It was this feast of love, mm-hmm. and we are all a family, we're all connected because of this meal, because of his sacrifice for us, and so it was this crazy celebratory meal, and so I think, yeah, I'd love to see if we can get back to that tone about it a little bit more. Yeah, and I, I think of the the Psalm uh, Psalm twenty three where he says, "Thou preparest a table for me in the presence of my enemies," and how that really points mm-hmm. points ahead to the Lord's Supper. But uh, great exactly. stuff here. One uh, one more question. I always ask I always ask folks this when I'm interviewing them because I'm so fascinated by it as a writer. What does your writing and creative process look like? I mean, uh, everyone has sort of different ways that they're wired. And so are you someone who uh, gets up at, you know, four in the morning and cranks out 5,000 words? Are you are a deadline guy like I am, where you just kind of have that deadline and you have to find, uh, you know, time to, to crank out the manuscript? Yeah, totally. What's yeah, your process? I, um, it's actually, yeah, it was pretty similar with both books, except this one was um, a lot more research and study and kind of uh, uh, mm-hmm. undergirthing per se. But yeah, for me, I really hold on to it internally for a long time. My wife would say this even about anything creatively I do that I just really get in my own head, sometimes even in a bad way, but I just am always thinking and chewing on it, and then it almost becomes to the point where I'm just like, okay, I have to get it out now, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, I can't start writing until I really have just churned on it a long time to really get the big picture and try to think what's going on here. And So for me, I internalize for a long, long time. I'd probably say a couple months, maybe even a year for this one. Mm-hmm. And then finally, I started putting stuff down on paper, and then for me, yeah, not a crazy rhythm of like, you know, this time or this time. I just basically knew I had about, by the time I was starting to put my pen to paper, we outlined it, and then I probably had about three to four months before the deadline, so I just said, you know, I got to just get it done here and there. And so I'd probably say, yeah, a couple times a week, I would just carve out like a half a day, and, mm-hmm. and then basically try to just write as much as I could, and then just kind of wait until, you know, a couple of days later to do it again. So that was probably the way I did both books, actually, looking back. How much different is writing for, like, say, spoken word 
and then you know writing a book like the two different creative processes or their similarities yeah no um, i'd say they're very different because of the sense of uh i feel like especially the way i write which i think is why it maybe connects a little bit more with my generation is it's very stream of thought conversation mm-hmm. and so because of that i mean i guess that's the one perk i do really like that because i basically just get to start typing you know i don't mm-hmm. really press delete you know mm-hmm. i just let the pub i just let the publisher do that part so um <laughs> So, yeah, so uh, when spoken word is a little bit more methodical, trying to think of the more precise uh, precision and words and stuff like that. That's that's great. Well, listen, listen, Jefferson, I really appreciate you joining me. This is this is a great book. Really encourage uh, all my listeners, everyone to go out and, and get this. It's Not What You Think by Jefferson Becky. Why Christianity is uh, about so much more than going to heaven when you die. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for taking time, and I uh, really appreciate your work in ministry. Hey, thanks for having me. It was a blast. I want to thank Jefferson Becky for joining me on the Way Home Podcast. I also want to encourage you, if you uh, would like to contact us and have any suggestions or feedback on the show, email us wayhome at erlc.com, or else you can connect with me on Twitter, at Dan Darling. You can also go to our website, danieldarling.com, and download other conversations we've had with other people like David Platt and Molly Hemingway and Oz Guinness, Max Licato, and many others. Uh, Also tell a friend about the podcast. Maybe write a review on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn or Signal, however you listen to a podcast. Uh, That kind of helps spread the word. I also want to invite you to this conference we're hosting in Washington, D.C. with Focus on the Family uh, called Evangelicals for Life, January 21st and 22nd. There's a coupon code, WAYHOME, that's in all caps, WAYHOME, that will give you 20% off if you're a WAYHOME listener. For now, thank you for listening to the WAYHOME podcast.